This podcast is from the Rand Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. For more Rand analysis, reports, and commentary on issues at the forefront of today's policy debate, visit www.rand.org. Well, hello and welcome. I'm Jamie Fugelston, legislative analyst at, in the Rand Corporation's Office of Congressional Relations. And it's my pleasure today to welcome you to our briefing. Uh, premium tax credits in the Affordable Care Act, the potential ramifications of King v. Burwell. I'd also like to take a moment to thank Congressman Ron Kine's office for their help securing the room for today's briefing. Now, I want to start by telling you a little bit about today's program. As you all know, the Supreme Court is scheduled to hear oral arguments in the case of King v. Burwell on March 4th. This case, the most significant challenge to the Affordable Care Act since the court ruled on the constitutionality of the individual mandate contest the legality of a regulation authorizing tax credits provided through federally facilitated health insurance exchanges. So what could this mean for the Affordable Care Act and consumers in these states? And what should lawmakers in Congress be thinking about as we're awaiting the court's opinion? Today, Chrissy Eibner will talk to you about what can be expected to happen to enrollment and premiums if the Supreme Court invalidates premium tax credits provided in states with federally facilitated exchanges. She will also talk about the critical role that premium tax credits play in ensuring stability in the individual health insurance marketplace. And finally, she'll discuss how the current structure of premium tax credits affects the mix of those enrolled in the exchanges, exchanges established under the ACA. I also want to tell you a little bit about Chrissy. She is a senior economist at the RAND Corporation and the director of RAND Compare, an initiative that uses economic modeling to predict how individuals and employers will respond to major health policy changes. She currently leads several projects related to the Affordable Care Act, including a technical assistance contract for the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services related to the monitoring and evaluation of the implementation of the Affordable Care Act. She also recently completed a study of health spending in Vermont and the relative importance of direct payments for Vermont residents, tax payments, and net federal inflows. Previously, Chrissy led projects for the U.S. Department of Labor to assess the implications of the ACA for employers. Chrissy's research has been published in major health policy journals, including Health Affairs, Health Services Research, and the New England Journal of Medicine. She currently uh, contributes a monthly column to the Morning Consult. So with all that said, I am pleased to turn it over to Chrissy to start today's briefing. Thank you, Jamie. Um, so as Jamie said, I'm going to talk about the implications of the King versus Burwell court case that's going to be heard by the Supreme Court uh, on March 4th, um, focusing on the implications for premiums and enrollment in the individual market for health insurance. First, I'm going to provide some background on the individual market and on the changes that the Affordable Care Act makes to the individual market. Um, this is really critical to understanding how a Supreme Court ruling could affect premiums and, and enrollment in that market. Then I'll move on and talk a little bit about King versus Burwell and the court case itself. And then I'll, I'll move to analytic findings on uh, the potential implications of a ruling in favor of the plaintiff and specifically what could that do to premiums, enrollment, and, and uninsurance in the U.S. So as many of you know, the ACA made some very substantial changes to the individual market for health insurance. So the individual market is the market where people go either directly to an insurance company or through a website to get their insurance, not going through an employer. So the first change that the ACA made was implementing something called guaranteed issue. 
So basically, this requires that all insurers offer coverage to whoever wants to purchase a policy. Prior to the ACA, that was not necessarily the case. So in many states, insurance companies could have said, you know, forget it, I don't want to sell a policy to you if that individual looked, for example, sicker or more expensive, uh, like they might be a bad risk and that they might cause premiums to increase. The insurance company could deny coverage. That's no longer the case under the ACA. And this policy is called guaranteed issue. Um, the second change that the ACA made to the individual insurance market um, is that it really limited insurance companies' ability to charge different prices to different people. So again, prior to the ACA, in many states, individual market insurers could charge higher prices to people if they thought they were sicker or more likely to use care or if they had pre-existing conditions or, you know, in fact, oftentimes women were charged more than men. Um, this is no longer the case under the ACA. So insurance companies now are very limited in their ability to charge different prices to different people. They can still charge higher prices to older people, but under the ACA, there's a, a, a rating band that, can, that, that means that the oldest person in the market can't be charged more than three times as much as the youngest adult. So that constricts um, what would have been the case in an unregulated market where maybe an older person would have been charged five or six times as much as a younger person. Um, so we have these rating regulations in the guaranteed issue that have um, been, been imposed as part of the ACA. So what's the reason for these policy changes? Well, I think in general, the goal is to promote universal access to health insurance coverage. So guaranteed issue, and again, this is the policy where anyone can purchase health insurance, it makes insurance available to anyone. So for example, if you lost coverage uh, from your employer, now with guaranteed issue, you can be guaranteed that you'll be able to at least you know, buy a policy on the individual market. The insurance company can't say no, forget it. Um, and similarly, the rating regulations that, that restrict premium price variation across individuals were also intended to increase the affordability, particularly for older people or sicker people or those who had pre-existing conditions. Um, again, now the insurance company can't charge a much higher price to those people, effectively pricing them out of the market. There's, there's more... Uh, uh, there's a constriction of prices across individuals. So that was the goal of these policies. And in general, the policies have been pretty popular. So uh, this statistic is from the Kaiser Health Tracking Poll, which found that 70% of Americans have a favorable opinion of guaranteed issue. Um, and that's pretty, again, guaranteed issue is the anyone has access to insurance, anyone can buy a policy. Um, so 70% favorability rating in the Kaiser Health Tracking Poll. And you can see that's pretty evenly split between Democrats and Republicans. So 74% of Democrats, 69% of Republicans view this favorably. That's a vast majority in either case. So the challenge with these policies, you know, despite the popularity, is that without other changes, they could lead to what's known as adverse selection in the individual insurance market. So what is adverse selection? And this slide is illustrating. The basic nutshell here is that when you have sicker people enrolling in the market and more expensive people enrolling, premiums can go up, and that can lead healthier people to exit the market. So to understand this logic, I, the most basic point to understand is that health insur insurance companies base their premiums in general on the average expenditure of people in the group. So when you have people who were previously denied coverage because they were too expensive or expensive people who now get a better deal on premiums coming into the market, that raises the overall expenditure in the group, the overall average spending, and so premiums go up. And then when premiums go up, one thing that's very unique to health insurance markets is that, you know, that has an impact on, well, of course, pr prices go up, people leave the market. So when, 
when premiums go up, we have less expensive, younger people look at those premiums and say, gosh, you know, that's too expensive, I'm going to exit. And the piece that's unique to the... Um, the health insurance market is the decisions of those younger people can then influence overall, uh, you know, can have a cyclic impact on, market, on the market. So you have some young and healthy people exiting. Now, again, because of the law of averages, premiums increase more, more young and healthy people exit, and we get sort of a cyclic spiral of increasing premiums, exiting, increasing premiums. So a little bit of this spiraling is known as adverse selection. If we get a lot of this spiraling, we get what is termed sometimes a death spiral. Okay, and with the death spiral, you have like this ongoing cycle of exit, premium increase, exit, premium in increase. Eventually, you're left with a very small pool of people, mostly sick people enrolled on the market. Um, premiums become very unstable. Some insurers may pull out, and you're at risk of having a market collapse. So this is what we want to avoid, or you know, in general, policymakers probably want to avoid. And so the writers of the ACA, I think, recognize this as a potential issue with the guaranteed issue and the rating regulations. And they included two provisions in the ACA that were really designed to guard against this type of adverse selection. Um, so essentially, they have a carrot and, the sti and a stick. The stick is the individual mandate, which requires pretty much everyone to get a health insurance policy or pay a penalty. Um, and so because of those penalties, some younger and healthier people um, who might otherwise drop out of the market if premiums increase are going to be encouraged to enroll simply because they want to avoid those penalties. So the individual mandate is the stick, but then there are also the, there's also a carrot, and the carrots are the, the premium tax credits. Um, so these tax credits act as a carrot in two ways. First of all, um, the tax credits effectively provide subsidies for people to enroll in health insurance coverage. So they reduce the price that people pay out of pocket for the health insurance coverage. And now, you know, because people aren't paying the full premium, they're going to be less sensitive to premium increases because they're effectively getting a discount. So that's one of the reasons the tax credits guard against um, adverse selection. The other issue, you know, the other reason the tax credits are sort of protective against adverse selection is the very specific way in which the ACA's tax credits were set up. So these tax credits are available to people with incomes between 100 and 400 percent of the federal poverty level if they don't have an affordable offer of coverage from another source, such as Medicaid or through an employer. This is actually a pretty wide range of people who have the tax credits or, ha or who have eligibility for the tax credits. So 400 percent of the federal poverty level is about $96,000 a year for a family of four. So this is, you know, well into the middle class, you have people who have eligibility for these tax credits. Now, the way the credits are set up is that they require the individual to, to, fit, to pay a fixed percentage of, of his or her income um, for a benchmark plan. And the benchmark plan is the second lowest cost silver plan available in the individual's area. Um, so as long as the individual chooses this best benchmark plan or a cheaper plan, their spending is capped as a percentage of income. Okay, so just to give an example, supposing, you know, given my income and family size, my spending, you know, percentage contribution was $3,000 annually. If the total premium were $4,000, I would pay $3,000 and the federal government would pay the additional $1,000. If the total premium increased due to adverse selection up to $5,000, I would continue to pay $3,000 and the federal government would bear the additional amount of, you know, the additional $2,000. So I'm not at risk for any premium escalation, you know, once I've hit that cap. 
And that's really important because it insulates people from feeling the effects of adverse selection. So thinking back to that other slide, you know, to have the death spiral happen, you have to have people feeling the increase of premiums and reacting to that. But the way these tax credits are set up, um, once you hit the cap, as long as you're in a benchmark plan or a lower price plan, you're not going to feel that increase. And so people are less likely to respond um, by exiting the market. So these are the two provisions, and you can see the tax credits have sort of this double um, way of insulating against adverse selection. So now let me move on to the Supreme Court case, King versus Burwell. So King versus Burwell is challenging the legality of the tax credits in 34 states um, that have federally facilitated marketplaces. So you can see on the slide which states are facing a challenge. Um, the red states are, are federally facilitated marketplace states, and so the tax credits are challenged in those states. You can see it's a pretty big section of the country. More than half of the country is you know, potentially subject to these challenges. The blue states have state-based marketplaces, and their tax credits are not being challenged. So let me just walk through the details of, of what's the reason for the challenge. So the ACA, when it was written, anticipated that states would set up and run their own marketplaces, also known as exchanges. Um, these are the websites on which people can go and buy these individual market insurance policies, and, and they're the websites through which people can receive these tax credits. The way the law is written, it authorizes tax credits for people who enrolled in a state, in, in an exchange established by the state. And that, that little phrase there, established by the state, is really critical. Um, the Secretary of Health and Human Services was required to come in and set up exchanges in states if they opted not to or for whatever reason were unable to set up their own exchange or marketplace. Um, but the question is, are the tax credits legal or allowed in the states that defaulted to the federal government and, and effectively didn't necessarily establish their own exchanges, but the federal government established the exchange. Um, so currently, the IRS, in implementing the law, has taken the position that the tax credits are allowed in those states. Um, but King versus Bur Burwell is challenging that um, and saying the tax credits may not be permissible in those uh, states with federally facilitated marketplaces. So that's the crux of this uh, court case. So, of course, you know, given that, you know, logic that we saw with the adverse selection and the death spiral, of course, the, the, the concern is that if those tax credits were to be eliminated in federally facilitated marketplaces, we'd lose this carrot that motivates younger and healthier people to enroll, and that could leave premiums to escalate. So we wanted to try to analyze the potential impact of that type of decision to see how much would it affect premiums and how many people might be affected by such a decision. So to do this, we used the RAND COMPARE microsimulation model. Um, COMPARE stands for Comprehensive Assessment of Reform Efforts. Uh, a microsimulation model is basically a big computer program that uses economic theory and data, in this case, to predict the, the effects of a major health policy change or health policy reform. Um, so we've been working on COMPARE for over 10 years now. Um, we started prior to the ACA, um, you know, back in 2005, developing this model with the intuition at RAND that there was some type of major health policy change afoot in the U.S. And in the years leading up to the ACA, we used the model to analyze policy scenarios to help policymakers, including people in Congress, um, understand the implications of various design features of health reform and how that might influence enrollment and health spending and, and other outcomes. Since the law was passed, we've been using the model more for implementation and understanding the effects of implementation, implementation decisions. Um, so we've worked with um, the Department of Health and Human Services. We've worked with the Department of Labor, the Department of Defense, individual states, and state-based groups to understand the effects of policy changes. So, so the model has been widely used and widely tested. 
Um, and I want to emphasize that it, it, counts, it, it accounts for a very broad set of ACA provisions, including not just the individual and employer mandates and Medicaid expansion in participating states, but a lot of the weedier um, details, like guaranteed issue and the rating regulations in the individual market and risk adjustment and reinsurance. So we've done as much as we can to really comprehensively take into account the different policy changes that were introduced by the law. This slide shows what our model predicts will happen to premiums in states with federally facilitated marketplaces if, in fact, the tax credits are eliminated. And so the first bar shows what we estimate a premium would look like for a 40-year-old non-smoker if the tax credits are permitted. So we estimate that the total premium would be about $3,400. Without the tax credits, when we rerun the model, we estimate that that premium increases by 47% to about $5,060. Um, one thing I want to point out is that this premium increase, so this is the total premium, this is the change in the total premium. The actual out-of-pocket premium increase that an individual would feel if he or she was receiving subsidies would be even bigger than this 47% because part of that $3,400 would have been you know, paid for by the federal government. In the you know if if tax credits were legal, so supposing that person was paying only two thousand dollars and the federal government was picking up the rest, now not only is that individual going to have to pay the full premium, but he or she is going to bear the additional increase in premiums that's being driven by this adverse selection. So and as we saw in that you know adverse selection slide before, the premium increases go hand in hand with people exiting the market. That's kind of part of this cycle. And so the next thing we did was we looked at how many people would would drop out or lose individual market coverage as a result of eliminating the tax credits. And so we predict that 13.7 million people would be enrolled in the individual market with the tax credits. And if the tax credits are eliminated, that number falls by 70% to 4.1 million people. So a big decline in enrollment. Uh, you know, one thing to keep in mind here when looking at these numbers, this includes both the exchanges and the individual market plans that are sold outside of the exchanges. So that's a really important distinction. The tax credits are only available on the exchanges, but the entire individual market, including exchange and off-exchange plans, is, you know, because of the ACA's rating regulations, it's considered a single risk pool. Essentially what that means is insurance companies have to generate similar premiums on and off the exchanges. There's not flexibility to charge, you know, one set of premiums here and the other set of premiums in, a, in, in the off-exchange market. So these, these or uh, the Supreme Court ruling would affect plans even off the exchanges, um, and, and it would affect premiums for people even if they never received subsidies in the first place. The premiums would increase as a result of this change. So we're finding this decline of 13.7 million from 13.7 to 4.1 million. So that's a difference of 9.6 million people. 9.6 million people losing coverage on the individual market. So then the next logical question is, well, what happens to uninsurance? Um, and not all of those 9.6 million people are going to become uninsured. The reason for that is that some of the people may have access to another insurance policy, for example, through an employer, that they could enroll in if they lose access to the tax credits or if the exchange premiums or individual market premiums become too expensive. So we estimate, using the model, that of the 9.6 million people, 8 million become uninsured. So a pretty big increase in the uninsurance rate, but not the full 9.6 million. The remaining 1.6 million people find some other source of health insurance coverage. So the bottom line, um, eliminating the ACA's tax credits leads to large premium increases in FFM states um, and substantial declines in enrollment.
Um, you know, one point that I want to make is that this adverse selection occurs in spite of the individual mandate. So in all of the modeling that we've done, we've assumed that the individual mandate remains in effect. Um, we see this adverse selection nevertheless. Um, in some other sensitivity testing that we've done with the model, we've seen that both the individual mandate and the tax credits are important to reducing premiums, but the tax credits have a bigger proportional effect than the individual mandate. And that's what we're seeing here. Even with the mandate, these uh, premium increases are so large that some people drop off the market. I do think it's possible that if the tax credits were eliminated, there would be pressure to remove the individual mandate in FFM states. I don't know if that would happen or not. Um, the other thing that I wanted to point out is that, um, you know, this is a micro-simulation model, so some of you may be thinking, well, how do you know that this would really happen? You know, this is a model and you're, you know, we can't really predict the future, we're just doing the best we can based on economic theory and data. Um, but one thing we can say is that prior to the ACA, there were several states that tried to implement these kinds of reforms in their individual market, the guaranteed issue and the rating regulations. Um, that did see this type of premium increase and massive dis declines in enrollment. So this is not a completely theoretical. We've seen evidence in the past of this type of cycle occurring um, when there haven't been access to tax credits and the individual mandate. This presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about these issues and to explore RAND's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries.